Last week, we talked about the in-between, that in-between season, and a lot of us find ourselves in that in some way, and you're not sure what in the world God is up to, why he's letting things happen. It can be a place of frustration and discouragement, but it is also a place, and this is God's intent, it can be a place where faith arises when you hand that situation over to God and you just trust him, even though things aren't going the way you want them to, that he can turn things around for good. Your faith can arise and it can embolden you with courage to praise God for the coming outpouring, even in the face of that same enemy that's stealing it from you right now, as we experienced a little bit this morning. Jesus' disciples found themselves in that place. They left everything to follow him. They left everything to follow him. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. God has given me the second opportunity now to, to leave a career behind and to go back into full-time ministry here in this house. It's just it's amazing that he has done that. So um, yeah, we're handing it back over to him and trusting him and it's going to be good. But they did that. They left it all behind. Then he was crucified, buried, raised into life, but they really didn't know what in the world that meant for them. What did that mean for them? Because they were physically walking with him. So if you turn to the book of Acts, and this is often called the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples. I kind of call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I think it's more accurate because it was all about what he was doing through those men and women. Acts chapter 1. We're going to actually read through this and go through it. So the author, we believe, is Luke. Because he said that in his former book, and he's writing to Theophilus, and you can talk to Daryl all about the deeper meaning of that word. He'll, he'll be willing to, to share that with you, right? He said, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he suffered, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke with them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them. Isn't that cool? Whenever you get your resurrected body, you still get to eat. I, I, I like eating food, so I don't know. It's exciting for me, but anyways. Yeah, God prayed for me about that one too. I like it a little too much, but anyways. While they were eating together, he gave them a command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift that my father has promised, which you heard me speak about. I believe that is a word for God for us today. Wait, just wait on God. His promise is coming. Just wait for him. And it's going to be so good when it comes, all right? In the gift that he was speaking specifically about in verse 5, he said, Because John baptized you with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if anybody tells you the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't biblical, I mean, it's, it's, it's all through the Bible. But anyways, here's one of those examples. Then they gathered around him, and they're like, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. And isn't that, don't you just wish you knew the times and dates? God, when is this season going to come to an end? When is my breakthrough coming? I want to know the times and dates, but, God, but Jesus said, it's not for us to know. God has a time. He has a, a purpose. He has a season. It's not for us to know those things. It's for us to focus on this, because they were getting a little distracted. He's like, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So here we find another example of how God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. His disciples are like, okay, you're going to kick this evil government out. You're going to get rid of this wicked government, this evil government that's over us. And you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel back to you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's not why I'm coming back. It's not why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can be empowered to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He, he kind of shifted their focus back on what was important. Because the disciples were expecting a physical governmental shift for Israel. But Jesus was planning a worldwide movement that would establish his kingdom under every government and in every nation. He was infiltrating every, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every government. And he's still doing it today. He's still doing it today. We, you know, I, I can't speak their names uh, because it's going out in the internet streaming. But, you know, we've got missionaries that are out there and, you know, those, those places that you, I know you miss, miss the way he used to say it, you know, out, out in China. Um, you know, we've got missionaries there that are powerful and effective. God is doing work. He, he, is, he is saving people and filling them with his Holy Spirit in every place. That's what God wanted to do. Establish his kingdom everywhere. And it says in verse 9 that after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And then a cloud hid them from their sight. They're looking intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee... Why are you standing here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he'll come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And so again, this brings us back to the in-between. And so, wow, Jesus just ascended. The ascension of Jesus. He was physically taken away from them by the Father. And they're thinking, now what? You know? Jesus not only resurrected from death to life, but he spent those next 40 days meeting with them, providing many convincing proofs he was alive. Then he promises the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he's just like, later, and he's gone. He just disappears, hidden by a cloud, you know? They had lived with Jesus these past three, three and a half years, is the best guesstimates that we have. They saw firsthand what a life filled with the Holy Spirit looked like. Because you remember John's baptism in John chapter 3? Jesus was baptized by John. And while that was happening, you heard the Father saying, This is the Son whom I am well pleased. You saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit filled Jesus that he began his earthly ministry. There's something to that too. He was empowered and emboldened. The time had come to begin his earthly ministry. He often spoke to his disciples about some of the things the Holy Spirit enabled them to do. If you look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll read many times Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit and telling his disciples what, what the deal was, what he was going to enable them to do, what he was like. However, we don't know for sure that the disciples really knew what it would be like to experience a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so if you think about that, like, we live on the other side of history. We know what happened on the day of Pentecost. But so often Jesus tells us to wait for something, and we really don't know what we're waiting for. We don't know when it's going to come. We don't know what it's going to look like when it's come. Like, you know, he, he promises them the gift of the Holy Spirit. How are they going to know when they receive the Holy Spirit? He doesn't, he doesn't go over any of those details. He just said, wait for it, and then he left. 
They knew that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, but how would they know for sure when they received it? They just knew that the next step for them was to wait in Jerusalem until it came. And so that's what they did. But what did they do while they were waiting? What did they do while they were waiting? Because I believe that this is evidence of what we should do while we are waiting. Verse 12. First of all, they obeyed the Lord, right? They went back to Jerusalem. They went back to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount Olives where they were. It was a Sabbath day walk from the city. And by best guesstimates, we figure that's about five-eighths of a mile. I don't, apparently you're not allowed to walk fast on the Sabbath. I don't, I don't know. You're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath, right? And that's actually, even in this day and age, we're still supposed to follow God's example and take a Sabbath day, you know, a day of rest. That is a gift of God for us. So they went back, and when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. So those names sound a little familiar. The apostles, right? They were hanging out with a bunch of people. I don't know where Nathaniel was. He was a disciple, or an apostle, but we don't see him here. But it says they all joined together, constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and also with Jesus' brothers. Brothers came to put their faith in him at some point, right? So cool to think about. So I just, I don't know, anyways, I, I, another message for another time. But we actually see that Jesus' brothers didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They're like, if you're a Messiah, go, go tell everyone. You do this thing. You know, they mocked him and ridiculed him. But man, something happened on the cross. And when he rose again, they were convinced that this wasn't just my brother. I mean, this, this was the Messiah. Anyways, it says, so, um, so we go on. So the first thing that we see them doing is that they were all joined together constantly in prayer. When you are in the waiting season, in that in-between, be constantly praying, seeking after God. We're going to talk a little bit about this later. It's, it's, it looks a little differently than what we think this is. In verse 15, it says, in those days, Peter then stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 they were all in the upper room there together. And it says that he said, may another, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke so long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and he shared in our ministry. Of course, if you read in verse 18, 19, it didn't end very well for him. With the payment that he received for his wickedness, what did he get paid? Yep, 30 coins of silver. Who said nothing? Is that my son? Yeah, he got paid 30, 30 coins. So 30 silver coins for just going up and giving Jesus a kiss to betray him. Um, he took that money, bought a field, and he hung himself in that field. It says everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Ecladema, that is the field of blood. But Peter said in verse 20, it is written in the book of Psalms this. So we know that they're not only praying but they're they're going through and they didn't have bibles the way that we had the, the the bible that they had was the old testament and the psalms and the prophets written on scrolls and they were kept away in the um the, the, the temple uh or in the synagogues and it wasn't like you could just open up so what they were they were they were praying and seeking god and remembering the scriptures and peter stood up and you remembered this and it's written in the book of psalms may his place be deserted 
and let there be no one to dwell in it. And also, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's water baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Apparently two men fit the bill. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. When they prayed, they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. So show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go wherever he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven apostles. And so not only did they pray while they were waiting, but they also prepared. They prayed and prepared. They prayed and prepared. Using the word of God for direction... And looking to the Lord as their guide, they added to their leadership. No one would ever take the place of Judas regarding his lack of integrity. We know that he was a thief. Even though he was the treasurer of Jesus' ministries, he'd help himself to the money bag often. You know, uh, we know how he betrayed him. So that's why the psalm said, let no one else take his place. Don't you love the word of God? It sounds contradictory unless you got the Holy Spirit and then you know what he's saying, you know? It's like, you know, it sounds like Nate's con contradicting himself, but I know Nate, so I know what he meant by what he said, you know? It's, we, need, we need the Holy Spirit. Need the Holy Spirit because he's the one that wrote it. Even though it said that let no one take his place, meaning no one else like him, you know, in that place of apostolic min uh, leadership, but... We knew that he needed to be replaced. That place, that position as the 12th apostle needed to be filled. And so they did exactly that. They did what they knew God's word was calling them to do. His role in leadership as an apostle was filled by Matthias. And while they were waiting, while they were waiting and while we were waiting, not only do we pray, but we also prepare. Pray for it, prepare for it. I, I love this statement. Pray for it, prepare for it. And this isn't mine. I, I chunked off the bottom that, that gave the 700 Club logo. Just, you know. But anyways, I don't, want, I don't want to steal anything, but I guess I'll give them credit for it here. It's such, such a cool statement because that's literally what they were doing. But so often, like, we just sort of whimsically, half-heartedly pray. Like, and then we, 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 think, we think this really religious phrase is just going to cover it. But, but above all, Lord, just let your will be done. And that's not a bad thing to say, because his will will be done. But sometimes what we mean by saying, Lord, let your will be done, is I don't really believe you're going to do it. So I'm just going to keep doing my thing. And, you know, like, you know, Lord, you are my healer, and by your wounds I am healed, but let your will ultimately be done, you know. And what it really expresses is a, a lack of faith in our hearts and in our minds that God's really going to do what we're praying for. But that is not at all the kind of prayers that these disciples were praying in the upper room and it wasn't just the 11 apostles there's about 120 people believers disciples of jesus and i don't believe that they were just quietly sitting around you know because uh, one of the first things i found out in this ministerium when i first started at new hope uh and we decided to have these prayer nights for our community i didn't realize what i meant by prayer and what other pastors in the community meant by prayer is different like you know we had this prayer event and i'm like getting ready to start warring and declaring and everyone else for like an hour, we just quietly sat in, in a pew, a wooden pew. It wasn't very comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're really praying and interceding. But, 
That's not what these guys were doing by any means. It's not these 120 people. That's not how they were praying. They were just praying and sitting around and just waiting for something to happen. The Greek word used here for prayer, it is an earnest and it is a fervent prayer. And it is one that is accompanied by worship. That's why God keeps over and over again, like, encouraging us to let our mouths declare his praise. Open these mouths. There's a reason God gave that to you. He gave you a big mouth for a reason, okay? Some of, like me, I got a big mouth and I can project, you know. We have it for a reason. Use it to give God some praise. Don't be shy about it. But it is an act of passionately pursuing and seeking God. This is, this is the kind of prayer that, that this Greek word was used here. And let me share with you some other instances because just describing it that way is one thing. But here are the other instances in Scripture where the same Greek word was used for prayer. It's the same word that was used after Jesus made a whip, flipped the tables of the, um, the, the change, uh, the, the people who were you know, taking advantage of those who were coming in and selling um, uh, uh, you know, overpriced, um, like everything is today, um, sacrifices and offerings. That's right. You know, it just... Man, and he said, my house will be a house of prayer. This is the same word that he was using. Um, it's also the same word that was used when Jesus went up to the mountain and prayed all night long and then came back and chose his 12 apostles. It's the same word that Jesus used saying a certain type of demon could only be driven out by prayer and fasting. This is the same word. It's the same word used in Paul's letter to Timothy when he described a widow who is all alone, who has no family. He said her, her hope is in God alone to meet every one of her needs. And he says that she continues in prayer day and night. It's that same word for prayer. You get the fervent and the urgency and Jesus praying all night long. And this widow, she, she's crying out to God. There's a desperation and a passion and an urgency. It's the same used word by Peter when he was imprisoned, waiting for death, for sharing the good news about Jesus. And the church was praying for him all night long. It's that same word, passion, pursuit. It's the same word used to describe how Elijah prayed earnestly when there was a three and a half year drought. And the same word that, it, that was used when he prayed again and there was an outpouring of rain from heaven. An outpouring from heaven. And in fact, that, that verse ends with saying that the prayer, the same type of prayer, not just to quiet, say it and just, leave it with God kind of prayer, but a seeking and a passion and a pursuit where you won't let it go. That type of prayer from a righteous person is powerful and effective. So if you're wondering why your prayer life isn't producing the results that it really should, think about this. What does your prayer life look like? Does it look like that? Those instances? This is the type of prayer that cries out in desperation to God, acknowledging that he is the only answer, the only solution. It is a self-abandonment where you just lay down yourself. You're like, you know what? My needs don't matter right now, God. My only need is you. <laughs> and you just keep, keep pursuing him and keep, keep seeking after him. It's an ongoing, it's an unceasing conversation where our hope and our expectations are high. It is a prayer where we are looking and listening for God at all times. 
You know, it, it's not just a prayer in your prayer closet, but it's a, okay, I'm seeking after God. And so you're always looking for a sign, right? God gives us signs and to, to see him. We're, we're looking for an answer. We're looking for the solution. We, we want to, to take the next step of faith that, that God is calling us into. It's that kind of prayer that's just ongoing, but you're expecting it at any moment. At any moment, God is either going to break through for you or he's going to tell you what to do next. It's that kind of expectation. That's, that's what they had in the upper room. That's the kind of prayers that we are called to have. It, it's where we become not just like a, a deer that panteth for the water, you know, which is an awesome psalm and an awesome, you know, hymn as well. Where we become like a deer panting for the water by the stream. But also what I love about deer is they're always on high alert, you know. Whenever you're out there in the woods and you, you, you crack a, you know, whatever, a um, yeah, anyways, I'm sorry, I, I can't go everywhere I was going to go. Um, but anyways, we'll let the Spirit speak. Um, but anytime they hear that sound, they're always on high alert, and their ears perk up, you know? And they're looking. That's, that's what we ought to look like whenever we're in this season of prayer, is we're always aware. Like, God, is that, is that you? You know, and, and, and we're just, we focus, and, and, and our attention is on Him. Even though we're going about our everyday lives, our focus is really on Him, and listening for his voice, and, and looking for um, God to manifest. It's a pursuit, a passionate pursuit. Um, the other night, God showed me a bit of a humorous picture of what, what this season looks like, and what, what we should look like when we are truly in this season of in-between, and we have faith, faith and hope in God. Um, our little dog, Chewy, he's, he's a little one, um, he loves these Dollar General treats that, that we get. And I love that he loves the cheap stuff because, you know, whatever. But, um, but he was in Bethany's room because he just loves to hang out there and chill there. Like, you know, she, she's, his, she's his person and he's her dog, you know. And, um, but he, even though he was in bed and Bethany was in bed, whether she was sleeping or talking to some guy, I don't know. But um, that's another story for another time. Um, but while he was there, I opened the pantry and I grabbed those treats. And as soon as that bag crinkled, all I could hear is his, his, his paws clawing at that door. He got it open. And so I peeked around and I saw this dog barreling down our hallway to the kitchen. And he was running so fast that he kept losing traction. And he would like boom into one wall and then boom into the other wall. But he just kept coming. And then when he got to me, he jumped up on me and his tail's wagging, his tail's wagging. And our, our, our other dog and our cats, because they love treats too, they're there. And he's beating their faces with his tail. Like he pressed right on past them. Right on past them, even though they were there first, because he wanted his treat. That's what we ought to look like. Like the woman with the issue of blood. She didn't care about all those people and what they needed. She needed Jesus. She needed his healing. She needed his power. It's that desperation. That is what our prayers ought to look like. That as soon as we hear the voice of Jesus, we come running with joy and passion right, to receive whatever he has for us. And whatever he tells us to do, trust me, that dog will do whatever I do. Sit, boy, roll, he'll do it. He'll do whatever I tell him to do because he knows the treat's coming and it comes through obedience, right? It's sort of what we should look like. We should be excited and eager to do whatever Jesus calls us to do because we know that he, in obedience to him, is the key to our breakthrough, the key to that release. That's prayer. That is prayer. It is ongoing, it is unceasing, it is passion, it is a pursuit. I can't really find the words to describe it, but that's what it is. 
But man, I mean, just, if you've never, like, you know, we're kind of private people, so not a lot of people have been to our house, but our house is usually a little chaotic, a little loud, and for him to be able to hear beyond the noise of our everyday lives, that, that bag of treats crinkling, you know, that's what it ought to look like for us, that we hear his, his voice above all the noise. Not only were they praying, but they were praying together. And again, our English translations really don't do this word justice by any means. It doesn't really give an accurate um, description of what this was. The Greek adverb that is used here is defined by the Strong's lexicon as with, <laughs> I love this, with one mind, with one accord, and with one passion. That, that's, that's how the Strong's dictionary defines this word. They were together, but they were more than just physically in the same room. We're all physically here in the same room, but our hearts and minds are probably on, like, you know, as many different things as there are different people here. But that wasn't the case with them. They set all the things aside, and they had one mind, one heart, one passion. They were seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this gift that Jesus had told them to wait for. And they did not want to miss it, and they refused to go another step in life without it. Mm. I don't know if I've ever sought after God for something the way that those 120 people were seeking after it. And they were seeking after it when their lives were on the line. They had every reason to be worried and troubled and discouraged and depressed. And they had every reason to meet in that room and whine and complain to each other and say, this isn't fair. I don't deserve to get treated this way. Jesus didn't deserve to get treated that way. They could have, but what did they do instead? They fixed their eyes, they fixed their hearts, they fixed their minds in this passionate pursuit of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amazing to think about. This is a degree of togetherness and unity that goes way beyond just physically being in the same room. This is what Jesus desires of us as well. That's why he came up with the idea of church. Believe it or not, he prayed. He prayed that that would be us. In John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23, Jesus said, my prayer is not for them alone, and that's his immediate disciples. He said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Does anybody here believe in Jesus because of what you've read from these men? Anybody? If you're a Christian, that's you. You only believe in Jesus because they wrote that down. They wrote down this message, the good news of the gospel. Jesus prayed for us, for you and me. Listen to this prayer that he prayed for you. He said, I pray for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Oh, this denominationalism drives me nuts. He prayed that we would all be as one, even as he and the Father were one. Jesus said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And what happens when we are in unity as the body of Christ? The world will believe that the Father has sent Jesus. Hmm. Why are we so ineffective in evangelism and in reaching our, our communities for Christ? Togetherness. I mean, it's really not there. We are not the United States of America. We are very much so the divided States of America, right? And that mindset has seeped into the church as well, and it never should have. We should be the most united people on the face of the earth, even though we are so different from each other. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. He binds us together in unity. And the world sees that and recognizes it because it's so different from the rest of the world. 
this is our time to shine because the, the world's getting more and more dark and divided. So our unity should shine that much more brightly. And so he goes on and he says, I have given them glory, the same glory that you gave me, that there may be one, even as we are one. Jesus said, I and them, you and me, so that they may be, be uh, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and that I love them the way that you love me. So when it comes to the promises, the plans, the purposes of God, what do our prayers look like? Let's be honest. You know, whenever we decide to have a prayer meeting here or whatnot, you know, it's, we don't have that same kind of passionate pursuit, but we ought to. And I believe that is what God is calling us to. I think that's why he's rising up the altar ministry for such a time as this. To really more than just seek an act of God, but to really seek God. Not to seek after the gifts of God, but to seek after the giver of those gifts. To really get lost in passionate pursuit of him. That's prayer. Do we ask him? Keep on asking, right? Fervent, effective prayer. Keep on asking, it'll be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened to you. These are red words that Jesus said. He said, for everyone who asks, receive. The one who searches, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Why are we seeing closed doors? We're lost and we're, we're not receiving the things we're asking for because we need to keep asking. It'll be given. Keep searching. Keep knocking. Don't just pray one prayer and be like, well, God, I guess that wasn't your will for me. Shucks. Must have missed it, you know. No, keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on searching. Keep doing it. Keep doing it until your breakthrough comes. And that's what they were doing in the upper room as they were pursuing the gift of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They prayed that kind of prayer. And then they prepared. In John chapter 16, Jesus likened this in between season to childbirth. Literally in John 16, Jesus likened it to childbirth. It's a long season of waiting. It's a time of pain. But it's followed by a great joy where the waiting and the pain are forgotten. We talked about this last week a little bit. During that waiting season, however, the soon-to-be parents, I've never met a parent yet that didn't prepare for their child and dream for their child. They prepared a place in their home for that child to, to find rest, and you make it all cute, and you do all these fancy things, and you know, it's, it, what, mothers naturally go through this process called nesting. I don't know if anybody ever experienced this, guys, your spouse, your spouse, yeah. Nesting, it's crazy, it's, you know, you thought the to-do list was bad, you know, and then that happens, it's like, oh gosh. During our season of nesting, I just we bought our very first home in Cadogan. We paid twenty grand for it, and man, did it need work! <laughs> it needed work beyond work. And I'm in the middle of like rewiring the place and learning how to wire because I never, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you know. And, and then Nate comes along, and it's just it was crazy. And even when he came along, like he spent a lot of time in his uh, pack and play when I was, you know, out there with the, the circular saw, you know. Me, uh, but anyways, it's an interesting season of life. But the point is. When you're in this in-between season, a lot of us don't do this. We may pray for it, but we don't prepare for it. That act of preparing is an act of faith. It's a prophetic act that, that, that proves that you have full confidence this thing's coming. Prepare for it. 
Now, every mother knows all the, all the risks of pregnancy. Even in today's world, with all the technology we have, things can go really wrong really quick. There's no promise that that, that, that new life is going to come to pass, but that doesn't stop them from preparing for it. They don't say, well, something might happen, so let's just wait. Let's wait till it comes, you know, and then, then we'll prepare a place. No, that nursery is painted and decor is bought and all the diapers are bought and, the, you know, whatever you need, all that equipment. It is purchased in faith. That baby's coming. This new life, it's coming. And you just try to talk a parent who has been awaiting this child out of that birth, you know, it's not going to happen. During the waiting season, we should prepare. We should prepare. Um, you know, I remember this book that Becky got, it's called uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting, you know, and she read through that thing like crazy, and, and she's asking all these recent moms, you know, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, but she's so aware of what is happening, so aware that there is a life growing, and so concerned anytime something didn't seem right, you know, and, and just, you know, that's the way we ought to look as, as believers in Jesus with the coming promise. We ought to be preparing a place for it. We ought to be aware that it is coming, and we ought to be seeking somebody who received it. What did you do to receive it? What happened? You know, what does this mean? What does that mean? And you dive through the word together. And it's so hard for me to explain. But do you get the idea and the concept and the parallel? All right, thank you. I'll move on then. Um, in any case. But, the, um, but I think it's time for us to go into nesting mode as well. What can we do now for what God has promised? What can we do now to prepare for it? Think about it. Pray about it. What is something we can do now for whatever it is that you're waiting for? The believers in the upper room, they didn't fully know what was coming their way, but God definitely did. He knew that in just a few days, because Jesus stayed with them for 40 days, then he ascended. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost on the 50th day, so it's only a 10-day period. They didn't know that, though. They had no idea. He just said in a few days, and so they waited and waited and waited and sought. But they didn't know what was coming, Jesus knew that in just a few days they were going to grow from 120 people in an instant to over 3,000 people. Even though those 3,000 people knew that to speak the name of Jesus and to call yourself one of his disciples meant you're going to die. They didn't care. Isn't that so cool to think about? Don't worry about what the government's going to do and say. It doesn't, don't, don't matter what the, don't care about what they ban. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 24 that every nation's going to hate you on account for me. And I love this nation and do everything you can to make sure it doesn't happen. But Jesus said it's going to happen at some point. At some point it's going to happen. It's not that you usher that and welcome it, but it's going to happen at some point. If Jesus, you know, if he wasn't a liar at least. If what he said is true. So what we do is we pray and we prepare. There's no way they could have prepared for those 3,000 people. Can you imagine that baptism service? All 3,000 people were baptized. And there's only 120 people. Do the math. That's a lot of work. But that work had to be joyous. I mean, think about that. They had no idea what was coming. And it makes me wonder, what would God bring if we were in that upper room the way they were, passionately pursuing God and not relenting until it came to pass. Because I believe God wants to do something in this season. I think there's a reason he's doing all these things. 
We just got to pray and prepare for it. Pray like that. Prepare for it. They were going to need leadership so that all these brand new believers could grow in their faith, become a functional body. In fact, that was just the beginning. Daily people were getting saved, according to the book of Acts, and added to their numbers. And in just a matter of months, entirely brand new churches were going to be planted in different nations in that region and area. Something entirely new was about to be started all under their leadership. Gentiles were getting filled with the, baptized in the Holy Spirit and filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. And so they had to go back to Jerusalem and scratch their heads. And they're like, what do we do with these people? Do, do they need to do this? Do they need to do that? What do they need to do? And so they went back to Jerusalem. They had this cool conference seeking after God. And they're like, you know what? This, this seems right. Send this letter. It was a very short letter, very short requirements. And, and if you don't know what it is, find it and read it. I'm not going to tell you what it said. So, yeah. Um, but that was just the beginning. The church was multiplying. And they were soon going to understand what Jesus meant by the Great Commission by disciples making disciples who would be disciples and make disciples, who would be disciples and make disciples, and so on and so on and so on. We are here this morning as disciples because of those early 120 because they did what Jesus was calling them to do, and we are called to do the same thing. They were about to oversee those 12 apostles, a network of churches that were different in just about every way from each other, except for their faith in Jesus for their salvation and the unity the Holy Spirit created. There's no way they could have prepared for that. There was no school for that, no college for that. There was, there was no precedence for it. We use their experiences as a precedent, but they had nothing to go off of. This is all brand new happening. It was all the Spirit doing it. And so, in closing, kind of ask, what, what's your next step? What is that simple thing that you're called to do in faith? Are we praying and preparing for that promise of God? Are we really praying and preparing for it? We all have a part to play. Not one of us is here in this room by accident called to this church family. You have a role to play. You have a gift that someone else doesn't have. You, you are in connection with people that no one else is in connection with. You are a disciple of Jesus and you're called to make disciples. Each and every one of us. We're not here by accident. We are called on purpose and for a purpose. The truth is only God can make anything grow. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Only God can make anything grow. He's the only one that can grow this church. He's the only one that can grow us up in our faith. He's the only one. But he grows as we act. He intentionally wants to work in us and through us, his people. God has made some incredible promises to us. He has every intention of fulfilling them. So what can we do to be his people and to see his plan come to pass? We know for sure we can pray and prepare, right? So let's do that. So Jesus, we thank you. We just thank you for being you. You're so good to us. You're so faithful to us, God. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. And Jesus, it makes us want to get to know you better. So God, help us to stop being so consumed by the petty things of this world. We want our hearts and minds to be consumed with you. Because you said you know everything we need, but you called us not to worry about it. You called us to seek you first and that you'd take care of the rest. God, we've been trying to figure these things out on our own and we've been failing. So forgive us for those failures and help us to learn to be successful by living out our faith in you. 
Help us to truly pray to you. Reignite that passion in our souls for you. Bring us back to that first love when you are the only thing that mattered in our lives. Give us ears to hear your voice and eyes to see what you're doing. And help us understand what role we have to play as we pray and prepare for whatever it is you want to do. Even as we did this morning, Jesus, we just hand it all over to you. You are the head of this church. Holy Spirit, you, you are the church. You're the only reason we come together in Jesus' name. So continue to have your way here among this people. And we're excited for what you're doing in and through us in your name. Amen.